0: Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. We've just dealt with the nation of Israel as they were engaged in horrific sin. And I mean horrific sin in that, yes, they're worshiping a golden cow. But even their priest has gone through this great process of telling the people, okay, we're going to mold this golden cow. I'm paraphrasing all of this. But that'll be God, the Lord himself who led you out of Egypt, that's that's who that'll be, the golden cow that we create. And that idolatry opens up everything to them in a sinful conduct. And by the time Moses comes down off the mountain, they're engaged in a full-blown orgy that is music and celebration and perversion And uh, if you've never heard it described that way before, that is, in fact, what was going on. And that's why Moses was so outraged when he came down. They've seen the hand of God. It's not just about the fact that they're at Sinai receiving the law, hearing the voice of God. They've seen the hand of God affect all of the Egyptians through the ten plagues, deliver them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, give them water and manna in the wilderness, and then they receive the law and rebel against God in this way. So God's anger is you know, stirred, and 3,000 people are killed. And now we come to Exodus chapter 33, verse 1, and it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send my angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. That is a scary set of verses to me when I consider all that's being said here. Now, just to break down some of the straightforward uh, you know, understanding of this section, you know, they've been at Sinai, they are receiving the law, and now God is saying, you guys got to move. We got to get you to the promised land. Now, Most of us here know the whole story. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness is what is ahead of them. I don't know if you've ever looked into it with any depth. It's an 11-day journey from where they came out of Egypt to the promised land. 11 days. Forty years of wandering and dying because of rebellion. Uh, I'd love to take, you know, the 50-year lessons I've learned and condense them to 11 days. And yet, we struggle. The Lord is patient. Now, within this statement that he's laying out here, I will not go with you. That's the horrible thought. You can have the promised land. You can have all I gave out to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You, That's yours. Why? Not because they deserve it, right? On the contrary, so much do they not deserve it that God is withdrawing from them presently. The reason they're still getting it, God promised it. He's a man of his word. If he says it, he's going to do it. He's going to carry it out. Even if the whole of the circumstance has turned. And what's the summary of this thing? Because you're a stiff-necked people. And I say again, we've reviewed this recently, uh, this continues until you've got Stephen in the New Testament, after Jesus Christ, you know, Advent and ministry, you know, death, burial, resurrection, 40 days of ministry, ascension into heaven. Stephen's there ministering to the people in the street, preaching to them as they're about to stone him to death. And he says what? You stiff-necked and hard of heart, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about right now, I can see it. He's saying, you know, no, this is our history. You guys are about to kill me. That makes sense. You've always been a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. All the way back to the beginning, as the Lord is, even in this statement, you guys, I, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, God has even said to them, we're going to drive them out slowly. Because if we just drove them out, then the wilderness and the wild beasts of the wilderness would take over. Then you'd have to contend with them. So we're going to leave them in place, and we're going to progressively move through the land and purge out all the occupants that would be a threat to you so that you can possess the places they used to live. Think about how gracious that is of God, about the whole plan, the whole procedure, everything. It's still in place, but I'm not going to be with you. This is a test. This is God testing these people. And listen to me crystal clear this morning. Because what the Lord is saying to these people, hey, if you're content to receive my blessings and just continue on without me, then go ahead. This is where the people are supposed to fall on their face and go, we cannot go on unless you are with us. Take the promises away. We have to have you above all things, right? What do the apostles say as Jesus drives the crowd away? They come because they want free lunch. They get fed five loaves, two fish, 5,000 people. Everybody gets lunch. The next day they're hanging out, what? Waiting in line. They're hoping to supersize everything. And Jesus says, you're here for free lunch. And they say, no way. It's because you're such a brilliant teacher that we're here. He said, well, if you're going to hang out with me today, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he, you know, we've got all of Christianity that tells us that's communion and Jesus. Stopped. No, no, they're literally thinking cannibalism. And they're disgusted. And they're leaving in droves. And Jesus is just content to let them go. But the apostles, right? He says, are you going to? And they say, where would we go? You have the words of life. It has to be, brothers and sisters, that when we find ourselves in this place, abandon the possessions, abandon the materialism, abandon even the blessing. You must have the Lord. You You can't go on without the Lord. Yeah, you're praying for the particular thing. You're praying for the particular material. The, the, whatever you're praying for, the only thing that is necessary is the presence of the Lord. These people are doomed if they go on from this moment without the Lord in their presence. Now, note here where it says... My angel will go with you. You can almost think like, oh, well, he's still with him. This is not the angel of the Lord when it refers to the Lord himself appearing as an angel. This is just an angel, probably the archangel, Michael, that comes, that will go with them and go before them. His his work, his presence, his power, you know, is not going to be anywhere near like it was previously. That's what God is telling them. And this isn't just some, you know, sleight of hand trick. Look, look at what it follows here in verse 4. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments, no earrings, decorations. You know, nobody had anything on to beautify themselves. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you so the children of israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from or by mount horeb remember they made the golden cow with the earrings from their ears the ornaments that they wore the lord is just sick of the whole picture you got to get in the raw i need you to just be in your humanness before me none of the worldly decorations on you i want to see you as you are Uh, the test is going to be those that do comply with this and those that don't. Those that have a broken heart and are truly entering into mourning. Those that allow this to impact them. You know, our, our tendency is to just run away. We'll hide in anything, in anything from the presence of the Lord, right? Just first thing you do, we turn the music on. Soon as you, Just fill the air. Don't let your mind turn. This is the way we very often work. We don't, sometimes we don't even realize that we're just keeping our day chock full of things that make it impossible for us to experience the presence of the Lord. What the Lord wants to see here is the people stripping themselves down so that everyone around that can see, no, my heart is towards the Lord. No, I'm, I'm heartbroken over what I have done and what we have done collectively, and I am only here to experience the presence of the Lord. The Lord is going to turn his heart towards these people in this moment. I would ask you to put your bookmark there and turn with me into the New Testament to James chapter 4. I'm going to begin at verse 4. It, it, James... Is a book of the Bible. It's my favorite book of the Bible, so maybe I just have, you know, sort of a tainted view or a slanted view in that way just because I personally enjoy it so much. But the way James writes is strictly from the sense of a stepbrother, he's a half brother of Jesus. He grew up in the house where Jesus grew up. He saw and experienced all these things. And you can maybe even write down in James chapter 4, verse 4, you know, Mark chapter 3, verse 21. Because there is where they've come to Mary and her sons, Jesus' brothers, and they've said, your son, your brother is now telling everybody that he's the son of God. And it says there, they, thinking that he was beside himself, went to collect him. <laughs> they think he's nuts. And they've gone to haul him off to the funny farm. That's exactly what's going on. Then he experiences Jesus' resurrection and his earthly ministry after the resurrection and the ascension, and he is converted to the point where he describes himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. That is a servant who has been for the rest of their life, enslaved to one master. James' whole perspective of Jesus. This is why he's saying, you be careful how you treat the strangers that come into your midst. You never know when you might be entertaining an angel. Or, you know, the son of God. I wonder all of the things that he had to go through. So when he begins to write, right here, this is from a man who understands better than anybody else. Oh, I'll even go this far with James and better than anybody else. Uh, you know, James, if there was a pope, there was no pope. But if there was a first pope in the church, James was the pope. There was no pope. But James was overseeing Peter and even correcting Peter in Acts chapter 15. If there's an authority in the early church leaders that we should be listening to, James is one of them. And look what he says right here in James chapter four at verse four, adulterers and adulteresses. I think that's very fitting to what we just read in Exodus. Even the sexual sin that's implied in those two things. You know, you adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship With the world is enmity with God. That is to be an enemy of God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You don't even have to be accepted by the world and get to move in those cool circles. Just the desire in your heart causes you and I to be an enemy of God. Desiring the world causes us to be an enemy of god and how does he label that adulterers adulteresses hold the form understand how strong it is do you think that the scripture says in vain the spirit dwells in us yearns jealously now if i from my humanness am portraying this wrong and I'm not giving you the heart of God. I'm just, Will Cass is permeating this message too much. Well, then that corrects it right there. The Spirit yearns for us jealously. It isn't a matter of God is so ticked off at you right now. He just wants to smoke you. God, God saw the adultery and, you know, uh, of the nation of Israel and just wanted to. Destroy them and get away from them. That's not where he he yearns jealously for them. And that's the whole position of motivation for God in what he's doing in Exodus chapter 33 and what he's saying here in James chapter 4. I strongly desire you, earnestly jealous for you, right? I'm very jealous of my relationship with my wife. People look at that, it oh, that can't be right, it's somehow sinful. No, no, that's the character of God. Those that are labeled as his wife, those that are in the scripture labeled as his children, he's very jealous for them. They belong to him. He belongs to them. Nothing should come between that relationship. Nothing should taint or interfere with it. That's what Israel is dealing with Presently, follow the rest of this in James verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, that's quoted all throughout the scripture. That's not like one particular area. The Lord says from the beginning to the end that he resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So it's an understanding of God's character. Therefore, in light of these things, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I have heard this verse misquoted and fractured all of my life. We often just hear, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Yeah, you, know, you got to understand how powerful Lucifer is. Right? He, he, you know, he's not going to be intimidated by, oh, no, he's resisting me. Whatever will I do? You know, God looking on, uh, you know, the devil looking on, oh, now Satan's got control. Satan is just going to. No. No. You don't get to just rise up. You know, I've, I watched those preachers when I was a kid talking about the power and the authority that we had over the devil. You know, and how they're going to bind the devil and they're going to cast the devil and they're going to stomp on the devil and just. You know, these were sermons I heard growing up. You got Michael the archangel, who is, you know, the most powerful angel in the entire army of heaven, who in his encounter with Satan said, I'm not dealing with you. The Lord will rebuke you. According to Jude, the Lord will rebuke you. I don't have to fight with you at all. Right. here when it says that you know the the lord resists the proud gives grace to the humble therefore submit to god resist the devil he will flee from you draw near to god and he will draw near to you you want the devil to flee from you you got to draw near to god that's how it's going to happen oh, i struggle my temptation my addiction my i can't even i am always how much are you drawing near to god because there's your victory It's not that you can get so strong as a Christian. Anyone who's ever taught you that or implied that is false. It's not that you can get so strong. It's that God is this strong and you can always rely upon him. You can be clothed in his armor. You can, in fact, according to the scripture, be clothed in Christ. Take off the old man and put on Christ, we are told. You want to resist the devil, you want him to flee from you. It's very easy. You draw near to God. You know, it's like the bullies on the playground, right? Just always roughing up the other kids. And the best way for those kids to handle that is go to the teacher who's in charge on the playground. Draw near to the teacher, and the bullies will flee from you. Draw near to God, and the devil will flee from you. You say, I've been doing this all my life. You got to examine yourself and really tell me whether you've actually been drawing near to God all your life, because it tends to be an oscillation, right? We're we're, we're close and we and we pass by the other end of the path you and know, again and just you know saying and just yeah I'm drawing near to Him in increments as I pass by Him. You know things get horrible, so I get you know stay here, just stay here. Isn't this what Jesus said? Abide in me remain in me. You know, when we're reading what Isaiah is saying, you know, those that wait upon the Lord will mount up on wings of eagle, run, not be weary. That word, that those that wait upon the Lord, it's not wait in any English sense of the word. It's not wait, sit around, bide your time, check your watch. It's not wait, show up with your service to him and provide for him as a waiter would. This term wait means to be completely interwoven with. Wait upon the Lord means to be intermingled with him. You say, I don't know if that's correct. Doctrinally, Jesus said he's the vine. We're the branches. If we will abide in the vine, then we have life. If not, he cuts us off. Here, the Lord is encouraging us that we would draw near to him, resist the devil, he will flee from you, draw near to God, he will draw near to you, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, your double-minded, lament, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. God says to the nation of Israel, strip off all the ornaments. Let me see who's truly humble. Let me see who's brokenhearted over what's just occurred inside this nation. And let me see if we can't heal this circumstance. None of this is God saying, I'm so perfect, you're so filthy, I want nothing to do with you. That's not it at all. It's God saying, you can experience my perfect presence if you'll leave all that junk behind (laughs) the only way to get to me is to cleanse your hands purify your hearts let your heart be broken let your heart mourn over your condition the world's condition around us humble yourself in the sight of the lord he will lift you up 33 verse 7 back in exodus moses took his tent you might want to underline that his tent pitched it outside the camp far from the camp and called it the tabernacle of meeting came to pass that everyone who sought the lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting which was outside the camp so it was whenever moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. It came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. The Lord talked with Moses. all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle of the door or the door, tabernacle door. And all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. As a man speaks to his friend, he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, the young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Now, several things for us to understand here. <clears throat> Very often, The leaders that the Lord raises up are outside the norm of Christianity. Very often. Outside the norm of the faith. We tend to codify everything so much. We make rules and laws and doctrines and denominations. And we cluster together unto ourselves. And then suddenly there's a new work of the Lord happening over there. And everybody goes, what in the world could that be? Well, it's a move of the Lord. And then the doubts begin. Well, it can't be because it's outside the norm of what we all know. Calvary Chapel was a great example of that. Accepting the hippies into the church, late 60s, early 70s. No one within Christianity was doing that on large scale at all. It was just suits and ties and long dresses. That was church, America. Hippies were, you know, filthy, rotten sinners that needed to stay away. So the presence of the Lord went far outside the camp and found a man who was willing to go to the beach and minister to them and invite them to church, and they started coming. And it overhauled Christianity to the point that everything that is the modern church today is from Calvary Chapel. Using contemporary music in the church, having a drum set in the church, that's all Calvary Chapel. None of those things were even allowed or considered way outside the norm. It quickly spread, right? People go, no, that started with vineyard. Uh, Do you know that vineyard started inside Calvary Chapel and left Calvary Chapel? Outside the norm. I think there's another outside the norm happening right now. I, I just see the church growing stale. And the Lord will move. And he will invite people to it. There will be a man in the midst who is very godly. And what attracts other people to worship? His worship. Nobody else is going to do this right. Everybody else is messed up. I'm going over here. I'm going to go worship the Lord. Moses didn't then create a whole new belief system or overhaul their faith, right? All of the doctrine, everything that's right, good, and true is the same as it's ever been. That old statement, if it's new, it ain't true, right? That's, that's, you know, very, very much the case. If it's true, it ain't new. If it's, You know, knew it ain't true, this whole concept of trying to create things so that you can invite people to, oh, this is the new and the fantastic. That's really dangerous. You can warp our faith and our belief system. You know, we're an open and affirming church. Really? I mean, affirming, we're an open church. Anybody can walk through that door. Sit down right here in any condition. You know, wear your clown suit. I don't care. You know, or dress however you like. Live in whatever fantasy you want to as you walk through the door. We're not going to affirm that. We're not going to sit here and say, oh, well done. Living in sin, rebelling against God, we're part of the new wave of Christianity. No, no. No, Moses didn't go outside the camp in order to establish a new belief system. He said, this is all messed up and I got to leave. And he went to a place where the people who wanted to worship to the Lord gathered to him. There's something to be said about that. When you're outside the norm and the people are being led by the Lord to come and worship. You notice That for the nation of Israel, really, right? This is this is the first of organized worship. Are are you seeing that in this narrative that's gone on? We've had all the plans for the tabernacle described by God, recorded by Moses, studied by us here in this room. We've seen the plans, they haven't enacted that. They have not embarked upon the proper forms of worship. Yet, how that begins is right here. Moses says, you know what? We're going to have a tabernacle. But for right now, my house is the tabernacle. And what does that inspire? Every man in Israel begins to make his own house a tabernacle. What are they doing? They see Moses go to be in the presence of the Lord. They worship right there at the door of their household. I pray to God, you guys that what you experience here, and I mean that with all sincerity, is the inspiration to go home and worship. To take this faith into your own life. If you're relegating it to inside this building, you're missing the point altogether. It has to be that you recognize what worship is and how it's being done, and then you're doing it yourself. You're doing it in your own home. Now, that last statement where we're told Moses saw him face to face. In 10, all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the tabernacle door. All the people rose and worshipped. And then men in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. He would return to the camp and his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. This idea of seeing God face to face, it's an unfortunate translation in the English language. The the English scholars intended it to read like that, but not in the sense that they were saying uh, one person meets another person and can see each other. It's much more the idea of understanding something plainly. So, We get an explanation of this in Numbers chapter 12 at verse 8 where the Lord says, we get an explanation of this, I will speak with him, Moses, face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord when, then, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So he's confronting the nation of Israel in their rebellion. The idea of face to face is with clear understanding. You know, Moses doesn't have to uh, have other people give him bits and pieces and then assemble his understanding and ask of others their interpretation so that he can come to a conclusion about what the Lord is saying and communicating with him. He has a clear relationship with the Lord that is like face to face. God speaks, Moses hears. There's, there's nothing that impedes his relationship with the Lord. I like the fact that 128 numbers 128 actually says, you know why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses it, it, It's a profound rebellion of these people that can look right at Moses and recognize all the miraculous work that's been done through that man but then say, now nah, I'm not listening to that guy That's a profound rebellion. Thirty-three, twelve. then moses said to the lord see you say to me bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me <laughs> what of these am i supposed to take we've got a whole bunch of rebels here along with those that are compliant yet you have said i know you by name and you have also found grace in my sight now therefore i pray If I have found grace in your sight, and that's not a doubting statement. It it would be more accurate to translate it. Since I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. (laughs) This is Moses one more time saying, I didn't start this program. I did not want to be a leader. You know, I I had grand plans and blew that up by committing murder. Had to leave town and enter the witness protection program and lived in the desert for 40 years. And by the time I was done hanging out and talking to sheep for 40 years, I couldn't even speak as a human anymore. Stutter and stammer. I was talking bad like all the sheep, you know. And says, I don't want to be your minister. And God says, you're going. So now when we get to points like this, Moses is reminding God, this is your plan. These are your people. I'm here to do whatever you say, but this is you. It's not him shoving in at God. It's not him blaming God. It's an opportunity for Moses one more time to say, that's right. I am a magnificent leader. That's right. I've been separated from these people. That's right. These people should all follow me. This is Moses saying to the Lord, nobody's following me. I'm not going to be delusional about it. I leave them alone for one minute. They all rebel. If they were truly following me, I could walk away and they would stay the course. They're not. If we're leaving from here, you've got to go with us. And they are your people. Saw, you know, the thing I had talked about, you know, how we do that as parents, you know, you'll never believe what your child did today. You know, i just trying to shift that over. It's not that at all. It's Moses declining the opportunity. This is still not my plan. This is still not what I want. I'm subjected to you. I'm obedient to you. But it hasn't swelled my head. Later, I've quoted it already to us. Uh, Moses tells us he was the most humble man alive kind of hard to balance that out with the fact that he wrote that himself but anyway you know in it he demonstrates that he is right we just read where God said you know what let's just kill everybody and start over with you again that's a prideful plan if God told you you're better than everybody else I want to get rid of everybody else and just work with you that would kind of make your heart swell. like I am I am as awesome as I thought I was Moses doesn't adopt that, ever. This is your people. It's your plan. I'm still here to just humbly follow. Why? Why does he act that way? I I submit to you that it's not because Moses is just so profound of character. I submit to you that it's because he's been in the presence of the Lord. What do we see of all the men who have stood in the presence of the Lord? Fear. They're immediately overwhelmed. With what they're experiencing, they are told none of them goes. Of course, of course, God would show up here. I'm here. God would be here. Every one of them. Daniel, probably the most profound prophet, maybe you know, in the Old Testament. I don't know. You can measure that however you want to. Said that when he was in the presence of the Lord, receiving the message from the Lord, he was sick unto death. You're gonna know your flaws profoundly. When you're in the presence of perfection. Moses is saying this from the place where he's been in this intimate presence of God and knows perfectly well. These are your people. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Oh, there's a verse. My presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. Looking for rest? Looking for peace? looking for fulfillment and calm, you're going to find that in the presence of the Lord nowhere else. Nowhere else. Let the Lord be your rest. Verse 15, then he said to him, if your presence does not go up with us, do not bring us up from here. (laughs) Just finish us off. If you're not going with us, don't even bother. Just, Just end the whole program right here. And how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And my goodness, is that true? So interesting the way the world treats Israel. Such hatred, such contempt. Oh, it's growing in the United States dramatically right now. If you think, I haven't heard much about it, just spend the afternoon perusing the news and see some of the different comments and things that are said, the stuff that's going on. Hatred. Boiling hatred is definitely growing. You're hearing even some of our politicians say things openly that are disgusting about the nation of Israel. They're going to be separated. So that everyone will know your grace because you've been gracious with us. We'll be able to preach that to to them. If you're not going to go and we don't want you to. We don't want to go any further if you're not going to be with us as we go. The Lord said to Moses, you know, I've spoken this thing. For you have found grace in my sight and I know you by name. He said, please show me your glory. Now listen. Every one of us, I think, you can come to me and correct me later. I think every one of us has actually prayed this. Whether we've said it outright or not, we've basically said, God, I, I have to see you work in this circumstance. I need you to do this. I must have that. You can please show me. We've said something that expresses this. I have to know you are here right now. Every one of us has said that in one way or another, I suspect. Okay? I would put it out to you this morning, God answered you. You might not have recognized it, and I'm not going to try and insist something upon you that didn't happen. But hear me out, and then weigh out for yourself whether the Lord actually answered that or not. Look at how this unfolds. 19, then he said... I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. You can't see my physical person, is what he's saying. For no man shall see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place by me. You shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Now, the one key element in this is the statement my back it's not a word that's used anywhere else and the understanding is not even god's person it's the idea of you will see what's left behind okay so if you think of like you know, the back or behind you, you know, like in my wake, you know, you go through with the boat and then the the waves are right there behind you. You see the wake. You don't look at the wake and think that's the back of the boat. You look at the wake and the waves and you think, well, that's the effect of the boat. That's the residual effect of the boat. That's what's left behind by the boat for its passing through this environment. And that's exactly definition and understanding of what the lord is saying here you can't see me i want to see you god show me you can't you can't but i'm going to put you in a location where i cover you with my hand i don't know how that works i'm going to pass by and after i've passed by i'll remove my hand and you will be able to see what remains behind after I pass by. Now it's not here in this passage, and we're not going to get to it today, but the residual effect of God having been in this environment affects Moses so deeply that when he comes down off the mountain, he's radiating the glory of God. For just having experienced what God left behind. That's quite a thought. That's quite a thought. Remember, I said to you, we were going to examine this and see if you've ever seen the presence of the Lord. Have you prayed earnestly? God, show me that you're here. And then he worked in your environment right then or later. And you were left with the undeniable evidence that God has been in my midst. That's exactly what Moses is experiencing here. It's on a much different level, but it's the same God. It's the same God, you guys. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, my God. Your God. That's who we're worshiping. And this is the power that he has today. He has the power. Listen, hear me in this. If you don't hear me in anything else, he has the power... Hear me, every one of you, he has the power in your life today for you to be in his presence and experience this to the point where you enter the world again and people are going to say, wow, what is going on in your life? There will be a radiant effect in your heart, in your mind, in your life. If you're looking for the radiant, I want to affect people, I want to touch them, I want to preach the world, I want to see people come to Christ. You know how you do that? Get in the presence of God. That's what this whole thing is about. Why did they fall apart? They hadn't been in the presence of God. How did they get in the presence of God? Now think about this. How did these people get in the presence of God? Moses goes into the tabernacle, and they are bowing in their own homes and worshiping. That's it. How did they worship? They read the scriptures daily. They prayed They sang songs, and they shared with other people their faith. That was the entirety of their worship. It had all kinds of different elements. But that was the summary of what we can do today to be in the presence of the Lord. The radiance that comes off from us. Two verses to close. John chapter 1, verse 14, tells us, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You guys, the entire Bible, but particularly the New Testament, the radiant glory of Jesus Christ and His gospel message. I'm assuming it has permeated every heart in this room. And we have the opportunity to radiate that out to the world around us. The Word is God. You can be in the presence of the Word every single day. Be in the presence of the Spirit. You say, Oh, I, I need I gotta have much more, you know, flamboyant experiences with God in order to know that I've been in the Spirit. Okay, I'll even buy that for a moment. Don't have to show hands, not trick questions. The great prophets of the scripture, right? Filled with his spirit, call fire down from heaven and you know, pronounce judgment upon the enemies of God and perform miracles and you know change poison into edible things and just miraculous work everywhere. Who's the greatest amongst them? John the Baptist. You say, he's New Testament. -uh. (laughs) Nuh-uh. Jesus Christ had not died. He's there before Jesus, declaring Jesus as the Messiah who is to come. And Jesus says, that's the greatest prophet that ever lived. Not one miracle ascribed to him. Not one. What was John the greatest for? Declaring Jesus. We are told by Jesus in that same passage That we can be greater than John because John didn't have the fulfillment of these things. We can radiate God's glory. Know the word. Share it with people. You want to know if this is in fact the power of God, the word of God? That's what we're talking about? His spirit, right? Didn't he tell us, "Clothe yourself in the armor, right? And take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Yes. Deep emotional experiences. Yes, supernatural experiences with God. But the ordinary is where we live every single day. And that's where this radiant glory needs to shine in my life and in your life and in the lives around us. The supernatural, the glorious, those are wonderful things and they do occur. But it's the ordinary life that we have to live in every day. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It reads much better in the English Standard Version, so that's why we have the uh, ESV here. We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I bet every one of you, people don't like it, I'm too crass, I know that. People don't like that, whatever. I bet every one of you was a dirtbag before you met the Lord. No, that's what other people have told me about you. But anyway, you're the radiant glory of his presence today. Unveiled faces. We don't have to put on a veil. Why did Moses put on the veil? Because the glory was fading. Not because Moses was so radiant that God somehow wanted to protect the people or keep them from worshiping. No, it was because the glory was fading. And God didn't want the people to be disheartened with the fact that, oh, that which was so glorious is diminishing. That's always the way it is with men, right? Our glory is always fading. Not so with Christ. Christ. We're being transformed into his image. If I've never explained it before, this is why I pray, Lord, change us, mold us, fashion us into the image of your son. Make us more like him, less like ourselves every day. I pray that very often. This message, I think, is one of the most convenient for Christianity. Seriously. Exodus chapter 32 and 33. Because it's such a depiction of our human character, our failures, and the grace of God. The way that he wants us. He's going he's gonna to say, when we're blowing it, when we're messing up bad, he's going to say, I'm going over here. When you're ready, you can come find me right over there. I'll be in the same place I've always been. I'm not hidden. I'm in plain sight. Just where you know I'm at. Remember where you found me last time? That's where I'll be this time. Same place in your heart and mind. <laughs> it doesn't move. You want to go wander around, be stupid? Okay. Okay. You say, well, it's not messing up. I'm still getting the blessing of the Lord. I'm still experiencing all these things. I know I'm doing things that I shouldn't do, but I'm still being blessed by the Lord. Yeah, that's exactly the charge you just put forward to these people. You can have my blessing. Go into the land. Go ahead. You can have my blessing. Everything I promised you, I'm not going with you. That's a hardcore message. I don't want anything to do with that message. I'll stay right where I'm at and live in the simplicity of bowing at the doorstep of my house and worship him. I'm not going to move off. And there's tremendous pressure to do so today. Hold your ground. Be in the presence of the Lord and you will be Moses to the world that's around you. Your worship will inspire them to worship. Lead by example. Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, again, we thank you for your love. Pray that you'd be with Andy and Terry as they travel. Lord, continue to bless Jean, Minister to Sherry Hill and the family. Help us to follow you, to be obedient to you. Bless us, keep us, watch over us until we're together again. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.